Welcome to Twill, the week in health law. The soon every state will be like Indiana, podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on November 30th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. And my co-host is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And please, dear listener, if you do have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. It really helps us to uh, get your uh, reviews and comments. And uh, also, as I mentioned before, uh, if you uh, want to experiment with the latest in podcast technology, um, you might try using a player on your iPhone or iOS device like Overcast that lets you see chapters. And so you get to see some of the graphics and the links that we put in uh, that would uh, otherwise uh, mean that you would have to head over to the show notes. Anyway, this week, Frank, we greet Isaac Buck, Professor of Law at the University of Tennessee College of Law. At UT, Professor Buck teaches bioethics, torts, healthcare finance and organization, healthcare regulation, and quality and fraud and abuse. Hopefully not all in the same semester. His scholarship examines governmental enforcement of laws affecting healthcare in the United States, and some of his recent writing in particular evaluates how the enforcement of healthcare fraud and abuse laws impacts quality of care, particularly with regard to overtreatment and its that uh, last idea of overtreatment that I think is going to uh, dominate our discussion this afternoon. Great to have you on the pod, Zach. Happy to be here, Nick. Thank you. All right. Well, let's dive in. The question you pose uh, with the uh, the California Law Review article is, and I'm cribbing a bit now from your own text, is how we can maintain provider autonomy together with patients' freedom of choice, but also construct reasonable incentives and limitations to prod providers and Medicare beneficiaries into choosing more cost-effective treatments. Your answer uh, draws on fiduciary law, um, but a applies them uh, to the payer-provider relationship rather than the patient-provider relationship. And it's a fascinating idea because here you are grabbing something from Health Law and Ethics 101 and tossing it like the holy hand grenade of Antioch, a listener email Frank, not me, about that reference, into the reimbursement revenue relationship. So can you tell us more about the underlying problems that led you to investigate this issue and start talking about how you arrived at this particular solution? Sure, Nick. Thank you. I basically began this project looking at fraud and abuse enforcement and particularly focused on the problem of overtreatment that you mentioned. Uh, In previous articles, I've looked uh, at potential downsides to the federal government's uh, chosen method of regulating overtreatment, which is largely to this point linking the overtreatment problem within Medicare to the fraud and abuse statutes. Um, In previous pieces, I've I've noted that the fit between these anti-fraud tools and the overtreatment problem isn't perfect. Uh, in fact, it's 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 imperfect to say the least. And so in these uh, in these most recent pieces, particularly the California piece that you mentioned, I explore a, a potential new uh, theory of regulation using the fiduciary model. I, I've reached this idea uh, after analyzing other potential solutions to this problem. So I reference uh, trusting patients with an increased, robust, informed consent to try and choose their own uh, clinical uh, um, uh, uh, course of action and how that may be faulty, uh, drawing on some writing from Mark Hall in the past. And then I also look at at using a third-party profit motive like an HMO and basically 
basically uh, toss that aside as well as, as a problem or as a solution that lacks uh, legitimacy in the eyes of the American patient. I think that one thing that you might want to also note uh, as I talk about this is that the fiduciary model, I think, fits quite nicely, particularly because, as in other areas of the law, the fiduciary tool is used when there is imbalance in a relationship. And so I make the argument in the piece that Medicare is trusting its uh, bedside bureaucrats, to, to borrow Nick Bagley's phrase, uh, to implement decision making at the bedside without an ability really to influence what that doctor does beyond just the medical necessity standard, which is which is quite vague. And of course, Medicare lacks the resources in real time to review these bills as well. So you have a threat of self-dealing when you're dealing with the provider. You have expertise that's concentrated in the decision maker's hands, the provider here. And you have the Medicare program along with patients that are basically just trusting the doctor to make important decisions because the cost of monitoring, that is the ability for Medicare to review every clinical decision, is just too high. There are other characteristics that I think fit here with the fiduciary model, like it's a service relationship, the doctor is entrusted with such power, other external controls are weak. And so I, at the end of the piece, kind of come to this, to the realization that maybe we could use the fiduciary metaphor or model uh, and apply it in a way that it hasn't been applied before. And that's between providers and payers, particularly Medicare. So I have a question where I, I want to frame the question of the professional having potentially multiple fiduciary relationships at once. And I hope to get that into that later in the podcast. Um, but I want to just back up a little bit. And I was wondering, Zach, if you might be able to just give us a sense of the scope of the overspending, overtreatment problem. Because I, one of the things I really appreciate in your work, you know, going back to the uh, stuff in the False Claims Act cases with respect to overtreatment is you're very careful to sort of distinguish between uh, this general problem of overspending and a problem of particular problem to, say, particular treatments of overtreatment that will actually be harmful to the patient. So do you have a sense of like where we stand there in terms of um, to what extent is this, uh, is, is your response in the California Law Review piece to the overall fiscal problem of, say, Medicare spending growing at a rate such that it will overwhelm tax revenues or, or the revenue sources for it? Um, and to what extent is this more narrowly directed at the problem of people getting medical care that is ultimately of no benefit, sort of at the flat end of the curve, as Antoven uh, puts it, um, or outright harming them? Frank, I think that's a great question. And, it, and I think that the answer lies in kind of both of the ideas that you presented. We don't have great data in actually defining the problem of overtreatment. Of course, we have the Institute of Medicine, we have Jonathan Gruber, who, you know, comes up with the 750 to $800 billion each year is wasted of that 800 billion. We've seen estimates of maybe 200 to 250 billion is pegged on overtreatment itself. Of course, that's applicable to the entire healthcare industry. That's not just Medicare. The other piece, of course, that my scholarship doesn't really look at is pricing, of course. Uh, and that's a huge driver of healthcare costs when it comes to private uh, private payers. Uh, so I focus on the Medicare end of things, which is largely driven by the overtreatment problem. Uh, regarding your, your the second kind of part of your question, I think this is an area of the law, at least what has kind of drawn me to it. This is an area of uh, healthcare practice that seems to lack any reasoned legal answer. Uh, and so if we look 
look at the landscape of health law, you have a medical malpractice regime that allows patients to seek recompense when they are harmed. You have a fraud and abuse regime that allows the federal government to seek recompense when they think they've been ripped off or fraud has been committed. And then you have these cases in the middle where there's not clear patient harm, but it doesn't seem like it rises to the level of a false claim because the provider may not have the requisite fraudulent intent to maintain an FCA action. So that's what I guess initially drew me to this work because I felt like this was such a large problem, the scope of which we we frankly don't really know. But then maybe more importantly as a law professor, I thought this was an area that was basically left without any reasoned legal regulation. And you know, the answers as to why we don't really have that are are easy to come up with. We have a difficult time making decisions when it comes to efficiency. Medicare does not, in its national coverage determinations, ask whether uh, a particular procedure or spending on a particular procedure is cost effective. It's it's a, a kind of afraid of that. And we find it uncomfortable. Now, some of the changes uh, over the last five or six years in payment models and some of them going forward, assuming they do go forward, mean to or attempt to change some of those incentives. But as it is right now, we have a, a large swath of clinical care that seems, at least to me, to, to be completely unregulated when it comes to uh, cost efficiency. And I guess one of the ideals here in terms of getting to cost efficiency would be some kind of quality adjusted life years approach, disability adjusted life years approach, uh, National Institute for Clinical Excellence sort of nice uh, approach of, of Britain toward quantifying what, say, the, the benefit is for any particular intervention. Is that something that you think has to be sort of uh, worked into your concept of financial toxicity? And, and could you give our listeners a sense of what the concept, how the concept of financial toxicity plays a role in, in your theory? I often characterize my work as, as second best solutions when looking at uh, clinical decision making with an eye toward cost uh, effectiveness, particularly because I do find a, a system like the NICE system, like you said, uh, much more effective, obviously, in controlling healthcare costs. Uh, I basically uh, kind of assume, I guess, in my writing that due to political realities in the United States that we're not likely to get to a system like that. Uh, and I think that's particularly true uh, this month. Um, I, so I, I, I guess I say what I've tried to do is, is pull on different levers within the law that exist in a way to try to change incentives or apply pressure uh, to, to the healthcare system, to the clinical decision making. Uh, the second piece that you mentioned you mentioned the financial financial toxicity um, piece. So this is this is an idea that I grapple with in a piece that's forthcoming uh, in January in the Boston College Law Review. And financial toxicity is something that's relatively new in the literature. It's something that has has been. Um, somewhat interesting or quite interesting to read about over the last year or so. There have been a number of studies, um, particularly in the long-term cancer context. There are three articles published in 2016 in the Journal of Clinical Oncology and the Journal of National Cancer Institute uh, as well. Um, that have basically found that uh, individuals in the long-term cancer context who suffer financial consequences as a result of their treatment actually also suffer health consequences as a result. And in fact, they have an increased risk of mortality, of not beating that long-term cancer, 
uh, and I'm talking about people who have filed for personal bankruptcy. Now we can talk about whether or not that's uh, those those studies are uh, you know transferable to other parts of the healthcare industry beyond just long-term cancer. But in the Boston College piece, I take this idea of financial toxicity and I make the argument that if we could view uh, financial impact on a patient as a side effect, like we do in other parts of clinical decision making, then that could also be a tool beyond the fiduciary model that I argue for in the California piece that pushes providers to think more about cost. And that if there are two potentially parallel uh, drugs or clinically equivalent drugs, and there is a large cost difference between the two of them, then maybe a tool like financial toxicity could be used to push that provider into considering that cost difference when coming up with a, with a clinical decision. I think that this could um, be a way that cost finally actually impacts quality. Uh, that's been the struggle uh, in American healthcare. We have done a good job uh, over the last 50 years in the Medicare program of trying to separate those two ideas, and we're finding that it's leaking in, that the cost of care is impacting the health of people who get that care, and it and it and if we're not using the the potential consequences of that uh, of the cost, then in the clinical decision making, then we're missing a big component of what it means to get high quality care. I take the note that perfection is an enemy here and that you're looking for the best possible way of dealing with overtreatment and underutilization. But the toxicity piece uh, that's coming out soon primarily asks the question as to the obligations, the duties of physicians. And I wonder also at the fiduciary level, going back to the to the other piece, I wonder to what extent perhaps you're giving physicians a bit of a pass here. Did we identify so many flaws in the consumer-directed healthcare movement that that sort of led us to discount all uh, physician actions regarding uh, cost determinations? Because I think there are other ways to do things uh, uh, that physicians can get involved and to do it within their sort of professional remit. You and I, Zach, have talked before about the Choosing Wisely movement, and clearly there are some new clinical practice guidelines that are coming out, particularly now from the American College of Cardiology, that explicitly put cost effectiveness into the development of the clinical guidelines. And indeed, Frank, uh, to your point about uh, NICE and other European systems, actually use a quality metric within the clinical practice guidelines. So I wonder whether we're moving too fast away from physician obligations to trying to take those fiduciary obligations and place them elsewhere? I think I think that's a good question, Nick. I, I think that there there may not, not be a, a good answer uh, to that at this point. Um, my, you know, my, my thinking on it, and you mentioned the consumer-directed movement at the beginning of your comments, uh, you know, I, I look at uh, not only the consumer or the patient um, being the decision maker uh, in this area, but also the kind of, like, You've mentioned the organic um, outgrowth of, of expertise from physician associations, et cetera, and clinical practice guidelines. Um, and I've I've felt that, and I, I wholeheartedly believe in choosing wisely. Um, but I've felt that those movements, uh, well, first of all, the the, the professional end uh, move slowly, uh, and they don't seem, at least from my perspective, to effectively address the problem. There may be things that they do. Um, that encourage 
encourage physicians to uh, to think more more seriously about uh, cost efficiency. Um, but I've felt, at least in my writing and study, that I haven't found enough good examples. Um, and and there are other things that I think that my model seeks to maintain, which may be lost in the clinical practice guidelines model. And that is that I'd seriously try to maintain physician autonomy as much as I can um, and recognize that each patient may present something different. And that's why the fiduciary duty model and the financial toxicity model both are very flexible and don't require a physician in any one context to choose the cheaper drug just because there's a fiduciary duty that pushes them to do so. So I recognize that there's professional autonomy to go against those pressures in some circumstances. Uh, you know, for instance, I, I give the example uh, in in the uh, California piece of two drugs that uh, ophthalmologists choose, Avastin and Lucentis, and I highlight that both of them are basically clinically equivalent, and the price difference between the two of them is is stark. Um, and because we have built a system that pays the physicians in Medicare Part B based upon the costs of those drugs, we have implicitly built, or maybe explicitly, I guess, built a system that directly incentivizes not only physicians to choose more expensive drugs, but also to, for drug companies to price drugs higher because they will have a, a marketing tool in in going into doctors' offices, of course, assuming that they can due to the fraud and abuse laws. Um, so I, I think you know this is a this is a major problem, and I think that coming up with a flexible solution to deal with uh, these types of clinical decisions is something that's important. Um, clinical practice guidelines can get you there. I was trying to think of something from the legal world that that the law could bring to the table, um, and that's why I settled on the fiduciary duty model. I felt like it fit very well. The, the final other piece. That you mentioned the, the um, uh, patients having a role or, or consumer-directed uh, healthcare having a role. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, again, I, I don't. Uh, I, I'm, I am not hostile uh, to those developments, and in fact, I, I support them. But I do feel that consumer-directed healthcare can only get you so far, and it's particularly the case in in healthcare because I feel that many patients will never achieve the requisite knowledge they need to make a decision that they can feel strongly about. Um, and so, in a previous, and I will say, in a previous piece, I, I argued about a robust informed consent model and how we could use use that to go after overtreatment. So I'm kind of going to basically trying to throw all sorts of solutions at this problem. Um, but in these pieces, I've kind of come back around to, to basically point out that I don't have a ton of faith in that in that type of system. So as we uh, record this, it appears that uh, we have a new HHS secretary, Representative Tom Price, himself a physician who practiced for many years. And he is, by all accounts, a staunch supporter of physicians against any kind of regulatory interference with the practice of medicine. And I wondered if you if you were to be asked to pitch your idea to the new secretary, I, I wonder how you how you could make this the most palatable of all the possible approaches that 
HHS CMS could take. <laughs> well, thank you, Nick. I uh, I'll I'll, t- I'll try and take your challenge. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I've done a lot of thinking over the last couple of days about the choice uh, for HHS secretary, and, and I don't want to get um, too cute about you know my ideas in this area, but but I do think that some of my work focuses on trying to find common ground between completely different viewpoints. And while I may believe, as we mentioned in the Nice system, as being the most effective at controlling cost. I understand that there are political uh, constraints in this country that probably prevent us from getting there. So my work, as I mentioned, comes up with second best solutions. So what would I say to Tom Price would be that that the system needs to depend upon the autonomy of physicians to make changes within American healthcare, but that I put the physician at the center of that effort, that this is not a bureaucratic requirement uh, on providers, that we're not putting more money into anti-fraud efforts. And instead, uh, we are depending on the physician internally to try to pressure that decision, uh, that clinical decision that the physician owns in certain cases. And so my work reminds me of an anecdote that I included in my financial toxicity piece, the story of uh, the cancer doctors at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, um, which was covered widely on uh, national media. I think there was a 60 Minutes interview a couple of years ago. It was 2012. Zaltrap had come out. Sanofi had marketed it for long-term cancer, uh, colon cancer treatment, and it was $11,000 a month. And the doctors at Memorial Sloan Kettering, I know a very small um, percentage of cancer doctors and particular cancer doctors at the very top of the um, kind of cancer food chain came out and said that they were not going to put Zeltrap on their formulary because it was too expensive. They went on 60 Minutes. They wrote a New York Times editorial. Within a month, Sanofi had cut the cost of Zeltrap in half. That's the, the kind of the, the idea that I use in my work, um, that if we can truly get physicians to the point that they care about the holistic health of the individual, and that includes financial health, because we're to the point where now insurance is not providing a a big enough barrier for us, for patients um, when it comes to cost, then maybe I could make the argument to the new secretary that a system that empowers physicians to make those decisions on the ground instead of of Medicare itself or instead of an HMO may be a system worth looking at. But I appreciate the challenge. Yes, that is an excellent challenge. And I guess I will follow up. And I think I I want us to talk more about the upcoming BC law piece, uh, because I think it's just so many interesting dimensions to it. And perhaps I will ventriloquize or um, mimic a pharma lobbyist. And I think that as a pharmaceutical (laughs) company lobbyist, I guess one thing that I would say in terms of looking at the Zaltrap situation is, you know, sure, uh, when we compare these drugs, you know, and and I've read the Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, position paper by the doctors as well, where it seems on the face of it just absurd for some to prescribe this incredibly expensive drug, others to prescribe the older drug um, where there's no difference or almost no difference in outcomes uh, between the two. But I suppose the industry's perspective may well be capital markets are very fluid. Money, you know, may be going at one point to pharma companies. And then if the potential return on investment falls too low, that investment will not occur. You're not going to have future innovation. 
And so one thing I'm wondering about here is, you know, the concept of fiduciary responsibility, it makes a great deal of sense for me in the direct client, lawyer, patient, doctor relationship where I really have to, as a professional, take this person's best interests at heart and there doesn't seem to be potentially that many knock-on effects later on. I wonder to what extent could the pharma lobby or others uh, who advocate for more of a share of the economy to go into uh, paying for innovation, if they might say, we resist the concept of a fiduciary responsibility to payers here because who knows, 15, 20 years down the line, with the money that we've made from our excess returns at present, we might develop something that will prevent any of this illness from happening in the future. Um, now, admittedly, you know, I would not personally make that argument, uh, or if I did, I would condition far more of the excess returns to actually be invested in R&D. But I'm just wondering if you anticipate some of that pushback from uh, folks that might worry that we might be trapped in, say, a local maximum when, with a bit of messiness and overspending now, we might come to a much better outcome later on. Uh, again, it's difficult, like you've mentioned, without sanctioning uh, a particular uh, percentage of profit uh, or hoarding it off uh, and, and requiring that it go to future R&D. We don't really know. Um, how much it actually costs uh, long term to come up with the next blockbuster drug or the next uh, preventive drug. Um, <clears throat> I do think that the illustration of Memorial Sloan Kettering with, with Zeltrap is informative, though. Um, it didn't take much for Sanofi to cut the cost of Zaltrap in half. It took uh, 60 minutes. It took a New York Times editorial. It took a position paper from MSK. Uh, and a month passed, and the drug was half of what it was. Now, I don't know if Sanofi made the decision at that point that it would be uh, the, the media effect, the negative impact or attention brought by, uh, by the move by the doctors in New York um, would hamper sales so much that all they could get was 50% of what they were initially charging. Um, that's my guess, I, I, I guess. But I, I don't think that Sanofi made a decision that they would then curtail research and development uh, for future efforts. Now, I know it's often from the same bucket, so maybe they have. But, but I, I feel as though until we know um, exactly what those impacts are, um, I don't, I'm not sure if that's, if that's a good enough critique. You had some of the same argument from pharmaceutical companies in Switzerland in the mid '90s, um, so I, I, I'm you know before they they changed their healthcare system. So I I'm, I'm not I'm not sure. I do grant that the difference between Lucentis and Avastin, which in my paper I mention is uh, two thousand per shot for uh, Lucentis and about fifty per dosage of Avastin, uh, a forty times or forty uh, multiplied difference, it is is quite a stark. Uh, example to use. And I do know that in other instances, the doctor will be faced with much more difficult decisions. Uh, and I recognize that. Um, and so that's why I, I do think that instead of a national coverage determination, for instance, from Medicare that says we're only going to pay for X and not Y, it, instead with a more flexible model here, you you empower the physician to take that information in and either 
allow that physician to to prep uh, to make that information primary and in coming up with the clinical decision, and maybe they do in the case of Lucensis and Avastin, um, or not, or 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 decide against it. And and I think in that way it mirrors, like you said, the fiduciary model in the lawyer-client relationship, for instance. I, I use examples that lawyers have duties to the court as well as their client. They do not just treat their client first and foremost um, with, you know, with basic no, uh, no uh, care for the candor to the tribunal, for instance. And so I make the argument that, that maybe it's time to view medicine in that way, that, that maybe doctors should have a primary fiduciary duty to their client, but maybe they should have a secondary duty to cost effectiveness as well, particularly in cases that are easy easy cases like Lucentis and Avastin. In the financial toxicity piece, you know one of the problems with dealing with current overtreatment is that we have some legal or regulatory failures as uh, marketing uh, based off-label regulation and indeed even fraud regulation for off-label marketing um, seem to have run into new challenges. And so you sort of switch off in that piece to new governance. And, you know, I, I think maybe for my own part anyway, private ordering aside, I have a healthy dose of skepticism with regard to new governance. But on the other hand, now as I look at what may be quite a large hole in my health law syllabus uh, going forward, maybe uh, maybe being able to put something in instead of the, uh, the, the disappearing regulation might be kind of useful. So can you sort of address both what you mean by new governance and, um, and, and try and uh, 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 persuade an old skeptic about it? Absolutely, Nick. And if you have suggestions on uh, filling holes in your syllabus for next year's health law class, I would I would love to hear those. Um, I, I will say that uh, the new governance solution is probably one that I or argument is one that I come to with a little bit of, of discomfort. I have noticed and I, I track a lot of the the uh, f- uh, medical necessity based fraud cases that I follow through the federal courts. There aren't that many, but there does seem to be a discernible change in the way that courts are addressing medical necessity based fraud claims uh, different than they did uh, five or, or ten years. Years ago, um, and different than they than the Second Circuit did in Mike's v. Strauss, the big um, False Claims Act uh, case, uh, quality related case. Um, and and what I've noted is that it seems like courts are pushing back more against the government's theory that whenever the federal prosecutor can argue that something lacked medical necessity, that that then transforms that claim into a false claim. Um, and particularly, I'm thinking about the Acera Care case in the Northern District of Alabama that got some media attention, where basically the court said, uh, no, uh, a difference in medical necessity is not, does not prove falsity. Uh, it, it basically demonstrates that there is clinical disagreement in the area, but it doesn't mean that if the physician relies on uh, a different concept of medical necessity that they've committed fraud. So uh, part of part of the new governance ar- uh, argument is an outgrowth, outgrowth of the realization, I think at least, and maybe future work uh, I'll have in this area coming down the pike is that the federal courts are becoming more hostile to medical necessity based fraud claims, particularly because they have a hard time pointing uh, pointing out that they are that they are false. Of course, in many ways, this is this could be. <laughs> 
maybe you know from the federal court's perspective it may be you know hey these claims are over inclusive they may end up being quite under inclusive if you have uh, you open the door to physicians basically saying hey we have a difference in medical necessity and it wasn't fraud in many cases where it could be uh, so I, I'm, I'm cautious to totally jettison that approach because I think it is worthwhile in others. But to more directly answer your question on new governance, um, I, I struggle a lot with standard setting uh, in in my work um, and future pieces. I think I'm going to look at this, um, particularly because healthcare is very difficult to measure, particularly because overtreatment is very difficult to measure. Patients don't experience harm. Uh, the 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 party that is the most harmed potentially is the taxpayer when it comes to Medicare. Maybe the patient is happy with the care that they've received with that stent that wasn't necessary. Uh, the doctor may have done a good job of putting it in. And so the new government's new governance art, uh, argument, basically the way I see it is, is a move away from an adversarial treatment of coming up with a clinical standard that we see in the fraud and abuse context and arguing over medical necessity and um, putting the, the doctor on the stand. Um, and instead, uh, a kind of recognition that there needs to be a collaborative understanding of, of what medical standard setting is, particularly if we're going to use it as a legal standard. There needs to be a little bit more respect shown to the, to the, uh, to the doctor community. Of course, I also get a lot of pushback on that thought too, that, well, look what happens when you give them the opportunity to set the standard. So that's what I mean by new governance, that we need to move away from an adversarial kind of fraud and abuse-based uh, treatment of these issues and instead uh, a more collaborative understanding of, of you know, what medical necessity truly means in these cases. And that was The Week in Health Law. So a uh, great big thank you to Professor Barker. Zach, as always, great fun talking with you. Thank you so much to have me. Just a quick future show note. We will be having our annual holiday show, the Naughty or Nice show. And we've got a wonderful lineup of guests uh, with their nominations. But I know Frank and I would love to hear from you as to uh, who's been naughty or nice in health law and policy this year. So uh, please feel free to uh, uh, to drop us an email uh, or at the addresses that will follow. Uh, as you know, we post our show notes at twill.com and you can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And it would be wonderful at me anytime at HealthPI on Twitter. So thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>